High school prom. Remember those days? You know, all the questions, right? Will I have a date? Will I enjoy my date? What will I wear? Where will we go? What car will I drive? Right? Where will we eat? What will we do afterward, if anything, if we're allowed? Right? Will it be fun or will it be forgettable? So many questions and so much uncertainty surrounding, at least as I recall, those high school proms. And yet there was one thing I could always count on when it came to a prom or really any high school dance. So think, it's the early 90s, didn't matter the DJ we had, didn't matter how big Nirvana had become or whatever release from the Beastie Boys, right? Every dance ended with the same song. Can any of you guess what that song might be? Boys to men, I don't know who shouted that out, but no, the trick, the trick is actually in the subtitle. Yeah, it's, it's the end of the world as we know it. Jacob, was that you? Jacob Honeycutt got that. Look at that. It's the, Jacob, I wouldn't have expected that actually. But I'm impressed. I'm impressed. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Every dance in my high school years ended with that song. Was that anyone else's experience? Nope. Santa Cruz was a weird place to grow up, right? <laughs> well, even if all of your dances didn't end with R.E.M., right, that song actually continues to resurface. So Y2K, that song came back. Actually, in 2011, sadly, he talks of low-flying planes and towers. 2000, uh, 2001, rather I say 2001, that song was back. And actually, during COVID, the song has once again hit a resurgence, so early COVID years, that song was being played and downloaded more than artists like Sam Smith, which might shock some of you. Either way, that song captures a kind of preoccupation many have with the apocalypse. But it's a particular kind of preoccupation, a particular kind of belief, a particular kind of opinion. It's a sort of dismissive mockery even of the whole idea. Yes, it may be the end of the world, but as the line goes, I feel fine. It'll be fine. In other words, you can relax. Now, of course, that song raises some interesting questions, doesn't it? Is there even an end to the world? Or is history just a cycle that keeps repeating over and over again? If there's an end, what will that end be like? When might that end come? And perhaps most importantly, will I be fine? Can we know if we'll be fine? Friends, these are some of the questions I want us to be thinking about this morning as we return to study Mark's gospel together. We're going to be in Mark chapter 13. Yes, all of chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, don't fear. We uh, Hopefully you received one of those worship guides as you came in, these, these ministry guides here, and you can grab one of these. And on page, I think it's page 9 and 10, you'll find the text to, to Mark chapter 13. Now, if you're just joining us this morning for this study, we are this morning in the final days of Jesus' life. So Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem in chapter 11 to much fanfare, except the religious leaders we are coming to see aren't exactly fans. They haven't been fans of Jesus really from the opening chapters. They're certainly not fans of Jesus now. And so in the temples, we've seen Jesus kind of, he steps into the ring with the religious leadership. And in the last two chapters, Every religious group there within Jerusalem, they've had their time in the ring. They've been given their round with Jesus. And yet, after every round, those religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, whoever they might be, they leave battered and bruised, bloodied and beaten, and yet Jesus unscathed. Not even a scratch. And that's all happened right there in the temple. The temple has been the ring where this is all played out with all of the anxious, curious crowds watching. 
And now the final bell has rung. There are no more rounds for the captivated crowds. Jesus' public teaching ministry is over. Chapter 12 marked the end of Jesus' public teaching ministry in Mark. And in chapter 13, he's going to walk out of the ring the clear victor. But what's next for Jesus? We pick up chapter 13, verse 1. And we're going to read through the entirety of chapter 13 right now. So tune in, get comfortable. All right, follow along. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James And John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake." But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant... And for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord did not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge. Each with his work commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. 
For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Now with that, I'm going to invite Trey Richardson up and he's going to explain everything to you. Good with that, Trey? No, in all seriousness, this is actually the longest block of teaching in Mark's gospel. And it is admittedly a tricky bit of teaching. I've read countless hours. I've poured over commentary after commentary. And it seems that every verse in one way or another is up for some debate. And my favorite verse, as I studied, may have just been verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Understand what? <laughs> right? How is that helpful? You may be wondering and you may be asking. But let's, let's just take a few moments and we're going to unpack, I think, just what's happening sort of structurally and big picture. Because what's clear is that Jesus takes an observation from an unnamed disciple about the grandeur of the temple, and he turns that into an opportunity to foretell the temple's destruction. But I think what's tricky, and this is what we sense as we read through it, is that while Jesus speaks of these events, these things he's going to keep saying, referring to the temple, he also seems to be introducing another event, some future event of which the temple merely foreshadows. So the disciples ask in verse 4, right, when will these things, again referring to the temple's destruction, when will they take place? And then Jesus is going to go on to talk about wars and earthquakes, and he refers to these as birth pains in verses 7 and 8. Then he goes on to talk about persecutions in verses 9 to 13. And then yet at some point he switches, Jesus does, from talking about these things and he starts talking about those days, verse 24. And the language there becomes more dramatic, sort of more cataclysmic, right? The sun is darkened and, and the moon doesn't give its light and stars are falling. And we get the sense this is a different day. This is a future day, a, an even greater destruction, if you will. The Son of Man coming in the clouds. So again, it seems the temple is meant to foreshadow a greater future devastation to come and in that sense the temple's destruction is but a type of a future destruction now the trick I think in the passage is knowing when is Jesus talking about the temple and when is he talking about the end of time because he seems he largely has those two events in mind so when is he thinking about which one and how you actually determine that is going to help you understand is really how you interpret the passage and here's my best read. So again, just follow along for a moment. I think if you see the structure and if you can catch some of the verbal cues along the way, you're going to be helped by knowing which he's referencing. So in reference with the temple's destruction, again, the disciples respond, verse 4, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. Right? So they want to know the time, when, and the sign. That's what they want, the time and the sign. And Jesus' first words are going to be verse 5. He's going to say, see. Well, see what? Well, see, he says, that no one leads you astray. And then he's going to go on to talk about false prophets in verse 6. But then if you jump forward, just jump with me to verse 21. When you finish that potentially confusing section on the abomination of desolation, look at 21. We read, and then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise. So right there, false prophets, right? That reminds us of the false prophets he talked about back in verse 6. And that's important because those false prophets will, verse 22, lead astray, if possible, the elect. Well, leading astray, he just talked about that back in verse 5. And then, because of that leading astray, it's why he says, verse 23, be on guard, and that word in Greek for be on guard is exactly the same word that Jesus uses to begin the whole teaching of verse 5, see. So see and be on guard, actually the same word. English translations, you, you can't capture it. But those verses bookend everything that is in between. 
So 5 through 7 and 22 and 23 are bookends with the command to see or be on guard, to not be led astray because of false teachers. Those are bookends, which is telling us that everything between verse 5 and verse 23, I think, is referring to the same event, the destruction of Jerusalem. And yet, when we get to verse 24, that's when it turns from the temple to the end of time and to what happens when the Son of Man returns. And those two events are followed by two parables about the timing of the events. So verses 28 to 31, you get the parable of the fig tree, which if we've been paying attention, right, we've seen the fig tree before. Back in chapter 11, the fig tree was used to refer to what? The corrupt temple leadership. So... Verse 29, we find that familiar phrase, these things, which we saw repeated back in verse 4. So again, all of that is telling us that 28 to 31, all of that is about the timing of the temple's destruction. And then when Jesus goes on in verse 30 and says, this generation will not pass away until again, see that phrase, all these things take place. Again, he's referring to the destruction of the temple. So those who... Will uh, it's promised, those who will not pass away until these things take place. That's not referring to our generation. That's the generation of the disciples that witnessed the destruction of the temple. And then with that, he goes from the timing of the temple's destruction to the timing of the end, right? Verse 32 to 37, concerning that day, some future day, when the master of the house will return, that's the parable about what happens at the end of time. So just to put it all together, 5 to 23, I think, are about the temple, 24 to 27, about the end of time. Then a parable about the timing of when the temple will be destroyed, 20 to 31. And then a parable about sort of the when of the end of time. So it's this A, B, A, B pattern. All right. Hopefully you followed that. Hopefully you tracked with that. What I most want you to see is you actually don't have to be some biblical scholar who recognizes and knows like original languages to, to get that. You can actually get that structure if you just keep reading this passage over and over again. As you look for repeated words, repeated phrases, when they happen, you actually can pick up that structure on your own. You can get there. Now, we had to do some of that heavy lifting at the start to know what in the passage is referring to what. And now I want us to take four lessons away from it. All right, four lessons away from it. Lesson one, the end is coming. So lesson one is very simple. The end is coming, which is not often what people think. We tend to think, right, things will continue on as they always have. Nothing in the world really changes. So Russia, yeah, once again is ruled like by a czar. And Myanmar, once again under a military dictatorship. And Tom Brady, once again in the Super Bowl. Right? Some things never seem to change. But that's actually not what Jesus is going to say. He's going to say it's not just this repeating cycle, this endless history that just goes over and over again. He actually is going to say that the end is coming, and the end is going to come first to the temple. It's going to come first to the temple, and it will be destroyed. So chapter 13, notice how it, it opens with Jesus coming out of the temple. And that's just like a, not a note on his location. Jesus there is exiting the temple never to return. Never to return to it. It marks his definitive break from the temple, from the temple's leadership, and everything the temple has come to represent. But the disciples, right, they're not seeing it. They're not getting it. And instead, one of the disciples, unnamed, maybe just to protect the poor guy, he makes a comment about these massive, beautiful stones of the temple, And that's not, I don't think, the remark just of some awestruck tourist. The disciples would have been to the temple many times. No, I think it's it's an expression of that disciple's pride in the temple. Because it was Israel's source of sort of national pride. The temple was Israel's crown jewel. You know, back in chapter 11 we talked about it. 35 sprawling acres was the temple. 50 years in the making. It rose, the, the, the temple proper itself, not the courts, but the proper itself, it rose 15 stories high. 
And most of it was plated in gold and silver such that you could spot the reflection of the sun upon the temple from miles and miles away. And the closer you got, the more you would have to shield your eyes lest you be blinded from the glory of the temple. And the stones that that disciple's referencing, some of those stones were known to be 37 feet long, 12 feet high, 18 feet wide, stones that would weigh over a million pounds, enormous stones. It was the largest temple in the world at the time. And it was, again, their great source of national pride. It's easy, isn't it, to become attached to buildings, to take great pride in buildings. The problem is that the religious leaders in Israel had rejected the one to whom the temple was only meant to point, and even that temporarily, which is why Jesus, in verse 3, is going to sit on the Mount of Olives, a mount that rose about 300 feet above the city of Jerusalem and above the temple, and he's going to look out over the temple and over its complex and over Jerusalem, and he's going to sit in judgment of it. Every stone, he says, will be thrown down. The whole thing, he says, raised to the ground. Right? The disciples drop their jaws over building blocks, and yet Jesus dismisses them as stumbling blocks. Because the temple authorities rejected Jesus, because they rejected God's stone. Remember back to 1210? that stone that was chosen and precious, because they would not bow down, everyone would be thrown down. And Jesus himself would become the cornerstone of a new temple. We read later in Mark 14, one not made by human hands. And yet the end of the temple, as Jesus is predicting it, that's actually just but a harbinger of of a greater end to come. And so when we jump and we think, to the the second event, beginning in verse 24, we read, but, right, a contrast there, indicating something else now. But in those days, right, after that tribulation, i.e. after the destruction of the temple, we read the sun and the moon going dark, right, the powers in the heavens, they're being shaken, and, and the Son of Man comes, right, borrowing from Daniel 7, which Colby read from us earlier, all that speaks, again, to the final end of time, where Jesus is going to say in verse 31, you know, the heavens and the earth are going to pass away. Friends, what we need to know, right, from Jesus' teaching is the world, the world as we know it, the world as we both love and at times loathe it, that world is coming to an end. Now, I know that's not how many view history. That's not how much of the world views history. For many, history is just, again, it's that cycle we repeat Right, we go through one evolution of life, only return and have another evolution of life. Maybe it's reincarnation, maybe it's some other dogma. Nietzsche, he would write, of the doctrine of eternal recurrence. Just again, eternally recurring over and over. But the Christian hope is actually not that history is just some repeating cycle. Some, you know, some cycle we just return round and round, endlessly going round, kind of like we're trapped in some merry-go-round of horrors. Right? That's not actually the Christian hope at all. No, our hope is not that we just keep endlessly repeating history, but that God redeems history, that he redeems it. We all long, every one of us, Christian and non-Christian alike, right? we long for things to not be as they are. And I'm not just talking about COVID. No, we long, all of us, for a world without anger. We long for a world without hatred, without bloodshed, without death, without accidents, without destruction. And that innate longing that things wouldn't remain as they are, that's actually a spiritual longing, something deep down in our souls. Like we're hardwired, it seems, to know and to understand that things are not as they should be, not as they were meant to be. It's as if somewhere in the deep recesses of our own being, we're aware that there was a time when things weren't this way. And maybe there will be a time when they won't be this way. Which is why we really can't accept them 
this way. And so what do we do? We seek to make them better, to return this world to what it once was or to bring it to what we hope it will be. And yet the problem that we've seen after millennia and millennia is we're incapable of it. As human beings, we just can't do it. For what we so desperately want to achieve, it can't finally be achieved here, right? We long to make heaven on earth. What we fail to understand is that we can't do it, right? As societies, we don't recognize that. We can't do it, which is why God must bring earth to heaven, if you will. Friend, history is not a cycle we're bound to repeat. History is a line, and it is coming to a definitive end when the master of the house, Jesus says, returns. The end is coming. Will you be ready? Well, there's a second lesson we need to see. Not only just that the end is coming, but secondly, that the end will be catastrophic. Secondly, I want us to see, I think it's pretty obvious from all the language of the text, but just to to make clear, the end, secondly, will be catastrophic. It will be catastrophic. And as it will be catastrophic for the temple, so also it will be for the end of time. So, for example, when Jesus prophesies to the disciples about the end of the temple, right? The disciples, again, they want to know the time, when, and the signs. How do we, how do we observe it, see it coming? And Jesus speaks in verse 7. And he speaks, what, of wars and of rumors of wars? about nations rising up, about earthquakes and famines. And we tend to think, oh yeah, that means the end is here. But that's actually not what Jesus says. Jesus actually says, no, this must take place. But no, that's not the sign of the end. That's not the sign of the end. He says, don't be alarmed, verse 7. Such events don't herald the end of time. He's saying those are just part of the tragic course of human history that we live in. So whether it was the great earthquake right, of Pompeii in AD 63, or what it was the earthquake of my hometown that leveled my hometown in 1989, right? Earthquakes continue. We continue to hear of them. Whether it was the Roman-Jewish wars that we're going to hear in just a minute that, that leveled the temple in Jerusalem, or whether or not it was World War II, wars and rumors of wars, they just continue. Sadly, right, that's what it means to live in a world infected by sin. But before the end of the temple comes, Jesus does say there are some specific things that will happen, they should watch out for. And in verses 9 to 13, he's going to speak of persecutions and of those that will come. So he's going to go from all these global things to more personal things happening in the life of believers. And he's going to say of the disciples, he's going to say, hey, listen, you, you will be delivered, he says, over to councils just referring there to Jewish councils, to city councils and the rest, where they will be beaten. And they'll say you will stand before governors and kings. They're referring to secular Roman authorities in order to bear witness before them. And then in verse 13, you will be hated right by all, right family even, by all for my name's sake, verse 13. So recognize what Jesus has described in 9 to 13. That's really just the book of Acts. Right, the book of Acts is an extended commentary on chapter 13, verses 9 through 13 of Mark. Extended commentary of these verses. And all this must happen, notice Jesus says, verse 10, so that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And what I want you to see is that what Jesus said must happen before the destruction of the temple in AD 70, actually did happen. It actually happens as the New Testament understands it. So the gospel proclaimed to all the nations. We tend to think, well, no, it hasn't. But actually, by the end of Paul's life, Paul will say in Colossians 1.16 that the gospel is bearing fruit throughout the entire world. In Colossians, uh, sorry, that's 1.6. He'll say in Colossians 1.23 that the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, including all the nations, Romans 16.26, which is one of the reasons why I think it's a bit dangerous and I think it's a bit foolish to read verse 10 as if verse 10 is a precondition for Christ's return. As if like God is up there wringing his hands because he's looking at one of our world maps with all the unreached people groups. And he's like, there's this little dot over here. And if my people would just get there, then I could finally send Jesus back. 
Actually, I don't think that's how we're meant to read it. No, in in the New Testament understanding, Jesus could come at any moment. And if he is waiting, which he obviously is because he has not come, it's out of love and patience for the lost so that we might continue to proclaim the gospel. Because while it's gone far and wide, that doesn't mean all have heard, which is why we need to keep continue to taking that gospel. So what I want you to see is that persecution, as Jesus lays it out, persecution is the context in which the universal proclamation of the gospel takes place. Persecution is the context in which the gospel is preached. So governments friendly to Christianity, recognize in the Bible, those are the aberration. Those are not indeed the norm. No, they're an aberration. So as evangelicals, sometimes we're surprised. We can be shocked as if when we look around at our own nation and we say, oh, this isn't how it's supposed to be. And at one level, that's true, right? It's a fallen world. But at another level, this is exactly what Jesus said it would be like. It would be like this. Right, governments in the Bible, they don't salute Christians, they don't pay honor to Christians, they don't celebrate Christians, they beat Christians, and they kill Christians. That's how governments tend to treat them in the scriptures. And yet, it's through that persecution, Jesus will say, that there is the opportunity to preach the gospel and to share the good news. God gives persecution For the purpose of proclamation. Even the church in Jerusalem is scattered, right, as in the early book of Acts. Scattered so that the gospel might go forth and more would hear. Friend, I wonder this morning if that's how you view persecution. Do you view persecution as an opportunity for proclamation? That's how the Bible says you should treat it. That's how you should think of it. Persecution as an opportunity for proclamation, which means some of us may need to stop whimpering about the persecution that we receive and may need to start sharing and see how God intends us to use that persecution. Sharing what we do know. That's what God calls us to do in times like this. Not speculating about end times that as Jesus is going to say, you can't actually finally know. And yet, even the temple's end, it's, it's catastrophic in a very particular way that Jesus gets to in verses 14 through verse 23. Because he's going to refer to that somewhat cryptic, right, abomination of desolation in verse 14. Now, an abomination is just something that's detestable. It's often associated with pagan practices in the Old Testament. So when he speaks to the abomination of desolation, it's some kind of act, some kind of desecration in a sacred place, which would make that sacred place sort of unhabitable, desolate, like you'd want to flee and leave it. And that language comes from Daniel 9 and Daniel 11. And historically, in the book of Daniel, those prophecies are fulfilled. Those Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled when Antiochus IV marched into Jerusalem on 167 B.C. So this is a good 150 plus years before Jesus And the temple that was there, well, Antiochus, he rode into it, and he destroyed the worship that was there. He put an altar to Zeus within the temple, and then he sacrificed swine on the altar, right? Unclean things. Like, you couldn't poke a bigger finger in the eye of a Jew. You could not insult one more than to sacrifice swine in a Hebrew temple. And that's what they did. And yet... At the same time, Jesus says there's actually going to be a future fulfillment. So yes, Daniel prophesied about this thing, but it actually has a further fulfillment, which Daniel may not have even known himself. A further fulfillment, which is going to take place, Jesus says, in your lifetime. And what he's referencing there is the actual destruction, I think, of the temple in AD 70. Because then the Romans are going to roll in far worse than Antiochus did back in 167 B.C., when, with Emperor Titus, they're going to march into Jerusalem. They're going to lay siege to the city. They're going to literally raise the temple. Titus didn't want there to be any evidence that a temple ever existed there. Those stones, all of them, torn, blown, 
trailed, like raised, you know, they got rid of all of them. It was as if there was never a temple in that spot. And Jesus is warning the disciples, when that happens, which, would happen, which happened in AD 70, it would be horrific. So usually what happens in, in the Old Testament, if you've got some coming destruction, you flee to a walled city. A walled city is where there's protection. But Jesus knows Jerusalem is going to be a bloodbath. So what does he do, verse 14? He says, no, 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 don't go to Jerusalem. Flee to the mountains, verse 14. And don't look back. Don't turn back. When the Romans come, there will be no mercy. A bloodbath of unspeakable horror. Somewhere in the realm, Josephus says, of a million Jews died when the Romans came in AD 70 to put, really to put an end to an uprising. Over a million potentially died. Crucifixion, the Romans literally ran out of wood. Starvation, famine, you know, horrors, unspeakable horrors. And yet those events, Jesus says, warning the disciples of those events so that they might avoid those events, those events, he says, are actually but a foreshadowing of a future catastrophic event. There will be heavenly signs of that event. So earthly signs for the temple, but heavenly signs of this cosmic collapse, this future collapse, verse 24, right? When the sun will be darkened, when the moon will not give its light, when stars will fall from the sky. Jesus is saying, now that is actually going to be a truly terrifying day, even beyond what was experienced in Jerusalem. Point being, friend, when the end of the world comes, despite REM's catchy lyrics, despite whatever you might think, it actually won't be fine. We won't be singing that song when this day arrives. So many act like we could party our way through it, like we could pretend that it's not happening. So I remember during Y2K, and some of you may remember Y2K, there was all this fear of sort of social collapse and our civilizations collapsing which all turned out to be unfounded. But nonetheless, I remember there were all these end-of-the-year parties. We were living in Baltimore at the time, advertising end-of-the-year parties, come to our end-of-the-year party. And we like to think, you know, maybe, yeah, Jesus comes, we can throw our own end-of-the-world party, right? Go out to the desert, like Coachella meets Burning Man or something. I don't know. You know, if you've seen the movie Independence Day, I know it's an older one, the movie with Will Smith, you know, when the aliens come and they, like, settle over L.A. And what are the people in L.A. doing? Because that's what people in California do, right? They go up the rooftops, they start dancing. Like, yeah, we can just celebrate. Of course, it doesn't turn out so well for them. Point being, when the end comes, Jesus is saying it will come and it will be catastrophic. Nothing will survive. But that's not the end of the lessons. Third lesson. Yes, the end will come. Yes, it will be catastrophic. But thirdly, thirdly is this. The end, in the end, Jesus is king. That's part of what we see. Thirdly, third lesson, in the end, Jesus is king. Which is not to suggest he's not king now, but he will be revealed clearly to all as king. So notice it's that cosmic collapse in verse 26 and then we read, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds. The Son of Man was just that expression Jesus throughout Mark has used of himself, again grabbing from Daniel 7. And yet it was Jesus' first coming, this coming we've been reading about in Mark, full of humility and weakness. When he comes a second time, he's coming in power and he's coming in glory. And it will be joyful. For all of those who are his. You know, I don't know if you caught that, but you know, we print these lyrics for you so that you can reference them again, even sing them again. So just look back at page seven, Lo, He Comes. If you've got a worship guide, just open up to page seven. I know the tune to this hymn is a little old and it's a little hard, but look at, look at that first line. Look at the hope of the Christian this hymn picks up that Jesus clearly talks about. It's really hard to find hymns on Jesus' second coming, which is tragic, but this one captures it so well. Lo, he comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending swell the triumph of his train. In other words, it's this, this holy procession, this caravan. Hallelujah, hallelujah, Jesus now shall ever reign. And that's the hope 
that's being picked up in these verses. You can look at, at verse 3 if you just want to keep going. But that, that captures it so well. It's not vaccines, right? That's not our hope. It's not election outcomes. It's not the health of our present bodies. No, our hope as Christians is right here. It's that Jesus himself is coming back for his people. That he's going to gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. right? And he's going to bring them to himself. You know, as a body, if you're just listening to the pastoral prayer, you're picking up, even if you're a visitor, our body's been through a lot of suffering. A lot of suffering just in the past few weeks. Members of this church family, we've lost members of this family. We've lost babies within the family. We've lost spouses within this family. We've lost brothers. Parents have lost children. Again, whether it's cancer or whether it's just age over time, And in the process, in this season, we've watched others, many of whom we know, people we love, we've watched them walk away from the faith. Not a lot of hope that those same people are ever going to return to the faith. And you, you start to add that upon just, that's the last few weeks, you start to add that upon to the months before. It's a heavy season. It's a hard season. Friends, it's why we need reminders like this. That one day, This, what we know now, the trials and the suffering, the sleepless nights, the discouragements, the despair, all of that, Jesus says, will be no more. There is, to every one of us, an expiration date to our suffering. In Christ, each one of us has that expiration date where our sufferings won't have the final word. Jesus has the final word. He has the last word on our suffering. For though heaven and earth, he says, will pass away, what? My words, verse 31, he says, my words will never pass away. And this Jesus is coming again for his people. So if you're in Christ this morning, that means this Jesus is coming for you. He's coming for you. That date is already on the calendar. And every day, that date, it's one step closer. One step closer. If you're a Christian, this life is as close to hell as you will ever get. But if you're not a Christian, this life is as close to heaven as you'll ever get. And that's one of the things Jesus is helping us see. Naturally, it's hard. We don't like that. But Jesus speaks what? He speaks of his elect. Do you notice that's whom he's coming for? He's coming for his people. And the Bible is clear that none of us are naturally God's people. Now, we've all rebelled against this God. We've run away from this God. We have said, no, thank you. I will have things my way and on my terms. And yet God in his tremendous grace, what this whole book of Mark has been about, he sent his son not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In Christ, God is saying, listen, there is a way back. There is a way back through my son. You can be adopted, reconciled, brought into the family of God. I have filled out all the paperwork, Jesus says. I have paid the price for you. Those adoption papers through my death and my resurrection sealed as forgiven and free to all who see their need of this Savior and repent of their sins and believe upon him. That is how you can be reconciled to this God, part of this family, and know the joy when Christ returns, that he will return for you And to bring you to be with him and with God. But there's a final lesson I want us to see. Yeah, the end is coming. It will be catastrophic. Jesus will be the king. And lesson four, the timing, that's uncertain. Therefore, be ready. The last lesson I want us to see is the timing of all this is uncertain. Therefore, be ready. Now, when it comes to the timing of the temple's end, Jesus gives the parable of the fig tree in verse 29. 
right? When you see these things, hearkening back you know, to verses 4 and 5 and the rest, everything in 5 to 23, he says, when you see these things, you know, right? There's definitive there. You know the time has come. But then he's going to turn and say, when it comes to the end of time, verse 32, right, that day, that hour, no one knows, he says, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, just to be clear, I think that reference to the Son not knowing isn't in any way denying Jesus' deity. Jesus has just asserted in verse 31 that though heavens and earth pass away, my words, he says, will never pass away. And you can't get much more of a claim to divine than that right there. And yet there are certain things, certain things that in Jesus' own humanity that the Father and the Son agree not to share. The time and the hour were not for Jesus to know, at least not yet. Jesus, it seems, didn't need to know in order to be faithful. And Jesus, it seems, was content not to know and could still be faithful. Jesus trusted the timing of his Father. Would that more of us could follow Jesus' example. Which is why he's going to give the parable of the Master who goes away in verses 32 to 37. And what is that repeated command in verses 32 to 37? But to stay awake. But to stay awake. For you do not know when the time, the time, verse 33, the time of, of, of my coming, when I will come, right? When I will return. He says, therefore, verse 35, stay awake. And then verse 37, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. And that stay awake, that's all part of the, the broader charge that's been throughout the entire chapter, right? That entire chapter, the broad charge to what? To be alert, to see, to be on guard, all the same verb in the Greek. Verse 5, verse 9, verse 23, verse 33, Jesus not being discreet, just throwing out breadcrumbs. Guys, listen, I know you want to know and speculate about the end. You want signs and the rest. I'll talk to you about the temple. About the end, I won't. But what I will say is be awake. Be watchful. Be alert. Because the premium of discipleship is not found in being able to predict the future. It's found in faithfulness in the present. That's what true discipleship is about when it comes to following Jesus. You know, John Wesley was once traveling and he was once asked, sitting on his horse, hey, what would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? And Wesley stopped for a moment as he sat there and he's like, all right. He grabbed out his diary, opened it up, and just went through his list of events tomorrow and said, yeah, I think I'd do these things. Well, Wesley could say that because he had so aligned his present commitments, he had so aligned his present hopes with his future hopes. That's what faithfulness looks like. To align our present hopes with our future hope. The risk though is that's, that's not easy to do. It's hard to do. And we're so often what? We're so often led astray in that. Which is why we find that repeated theme as well. Not to be led astray. You know this past month. Some of you may know we got a puppy. Yeah one of those pandemic puppies. Yep we got one. We got one of those. Wallace needed a queen, and we got this gorgeous, cute little red fox lab named Beatrice, and she is great. Now, Wallace is not actually so happy about this deal, but hopefully he will at some point. But here's the thing with Beatrice, our cute little puppy. She is distracted by everything, absolutely everything. She never knows which way to go. She never knows who to run to, which way to turn. So outside our house, we have to be super careful because it could be a leaf blowing in the wind, right? It could be a stick over there on the ground. It could be a cloud. I don't know, but she's running this way and that everywhere, distracted, which is a problem because we have construction going on in our street at the moment. Huge dump trucks, cranes, concrete, things coming in. Large, massive trucks that could squash this cute little puppy to a quick and rather horrible end. Friend, it's like that though in the Christian life. It can be a lot like that in the Christian life. Too often, we're like Beatrice, we're like the puppy. 
We're just led astray. Like whatever is in front of us at the moment, yeah, I'm going to run toward that. I'm going to run toward that. Oh, that's exciting. I'll go there. We're like the puppy. We're led astray. And this COVID season is killing people. And I don't just mean physically. I mean spiritually. It's been so hard to watch friends and acquaintances. I think all of us have this experience at one level. My wife and I do. Friends and acquaintances who've, who've professed the name of Christ, and yet in this season we've seen them wander. They forsake Christian fellowship. They think, oh, I don't really need that. I'm going to go at it alone. You add to that the polarization of politics. You add to that the politicalization right, of the pandemic itself. And their interest in spiritual things, it's just not there. Not like it used to be. Maybe not at all. You know, that one month drags to two and two months drags on to ten. And you can tell by the way you try to talk to them. You can tell by the way they dodge your questions. They're not interested in spiritual things anymore. They're not well. And tragically, it's clear that some, at least you fear, are never coming back. They've been led astray. Friends, we need to be on guard. We need to stay awake. For as Jesus says in verse 13, right, only the one who endures to the end will be saved. And I think he's speaking there. He's speaking spiritually, spiritually saved. Eternal life requires that we remain faithful throughout the entirety of our own lives. You know, as our statement of faith reminds us, it's our persevering attachment to Christ that is the grand mark which distinguishes us from superficial professors. That is, those who profess Jesus only in name. It's our persevering attachment, enduring to the end. That's what marks us out as true and faithful Christians. Right, 2 Timothy 2.12. If, Paul says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Right, praying a prayer, making a profession, getting baptized, none of those things ensure our entrance to heaven. Enduring faithfully to the end in Christ is what ensures that. Which means, friends, we need God's word, which Jesus says will never pass away. We need communion with God through prayer in order to be strengthened along the way. We need formal Christian fellowship to encourage us in the right way. And we need one another, right? We need one another in our lives. We need discipling relationships, meaningful ones where the purpose is Jesus and not just our shared hobbies. We need those kinds of relationships to keep us on the way and to rebuke us when we stray from the way. That's what it means to be watchful. That's what it means to stay awake. That's what it means to be alert lest we be led astray. For one day, it will be the end of the world as we know it. Friend, Jesus is asking you, will you be fine? Will you be fine when that day comes? Let's pray.